back with another episode of After Dark with Robin Andrew and my special guest host, Heather Robinson of the New York Post. Tonight, as you all probably know, is the big GOP first debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're not watching it because we're on live with you. But after our show, we'll probably go and see if we could find little excerpts from the debate. As you know, Andrew and I spoke about the debate on last night and what we think that the folks that are on stage should say. Well, one of the things we did mention is that we felt that Donald Trump should not participate in the debate, and we've since found out that he is not participating. Now, if he happens to step on the stage while Heather and I are talking, hopefully someone will send us a message and say, hey, by the way, Trump just got on the stage. But apparently, he's doing a sit-down with none other than Tucker Carlson. A lot of people think that he shouldn't do it, that he shouldn't have done it. It's disrespectful because you have the debate going on and they're going to be competing for different audiences. I get it. I understand it. But we know that there's no love lost between Trump and the folks at Fox. And Heather, I doubt there's any love lost between Tucker Carlson and the folks at Fox because of the way they let him go a few months ago. So, And not only that, they've been trying to silence Tucker Carlson because they know that the election is coming up. We're in that election period, and they don't want him to go out and give commentary or to compete against him. And I'm hearing that he and Elon Musk are supposed to be getting together and putting together some type of uh, ongoing like analysis of the election. And I do believe that we need it because what we got during the 2020 election – in my opinion, was nothing, it wasn't stellar at all. And there were so many things that people pointed out felt that Fox didn't do or that they were in the tank for certain candidates and that they wanted Trump to lose. I mean, it remains to be seen, but I will say this I do think that their coverage wasn't the best and they did open themselves up for a lot of criticism. What are your thoughts, Heather? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Fox definitely, um, you know, I think they try to stake out kind of a certainly very conservative, but, you know, a little more of a, a moderate uh, position in terms of giving liberals uh, a little bit of a space to speak on the shows. And, and um, I, you know, I don't personally have a problem with that. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think on the whole, they do a good job um, in terms of these different uh, commentators. You know, I, I do think highly of Tucker Carlson. I don't necessarily agree with everything, but I have the impression that he's his own man and, you know, he has strong convictions and some uh, controversial views, some of which I happen to agree with. And I think there is very precious little room in the U.S. media for such views, including a critical perspective on the Ukraine-Russia war and American involvement in all of that. Um, I think Carlson's been the only prominent voice in media asking questions about something that's pretty unprecedented in terms of the uh, the volume of money that's been sent in a very short time um, to to you know give you a, a, an example. People used to complain about foreign aid aid to Israel, which there's more aid to Israel being given than there ever has been. And it's 3 billion a year for the next 10 years. So it's, it's basically 30 billion, but it's over the course of 10 years. 
you know, what's been given to Ukraine absolutely dwarfs that. Um, it's a high, well over $100 billion now within a year and a half. So we see very little, hear very little. And I mean, that, that's one example of something, of an issue that I follow closely that Tucker Carlson was outspoken about. And so, you know, I think that uh, he's an important, very important voice. And I didn't like that, you know, Fox did away with them, but I will, yeah, be interested, very interested to hear what former President Trump and he talk about. I, too, agree with some of the things he says, and sometimes I don't agree with it. So he's going to be doing a sit down with Trump, which is supposed to air simultaneously with the debate, which is taking place tonight, taking place as we speak. And the moderators on Fox will be Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. What are your thoughts on them? And before you share with me your thoughts, I'll tell you that as of lately, I've grown kind of sour on Brett Bayer. Oh, really? Yeah. he He's good. But as of lately, with all these indictments that are coming out mm-hmm. against Trump, and I think that they're all it's – a, it's a witch hunt. He yeah. hasn't been able to, in my opinion, articulate – to viewers what's actually happening mm-hmm. and i don't know it's because he doesn't have a legal background but he's had people on his show with the legal background but i don't find that he's asking the questions that should be asked i think he's more so it, it seems to me playing into what's happening mm-hmm. i mean you can look at i mean even by just listening to the tapes from atlanta what Trump had said, and I think you had mentioned this on the other night, that you heard the entire tape mm-hmm. as to what Trump was asking for. Yes. I heard the entire tape. However, when different news outlets play it, they only play one segment, and they don't give it any context. and They don't say, well, you do realize he did say something else. And I don't find that Brett challenges the narratives that the media is putting out there. Now, you can challenge it without trying to Uh, become part of it and try to sway people's minds as to what the way you want them to think. It's my opinion that you give the facts and let people decide. He doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. He buys into the narrative of the left by saying, well, Trump is guilty. They're saying that Trump is guilty because Trump did X, Y, Z. But then you also need to refer back to the law and say that, well, under the law, he's allowed to do this under the law. Fannie Willis and her latest indictment it's at a the the charges that she's bringing to, for uh, at him are more federal because it involves the election and not state. He won't say that, and I'm like, that's an important part of the story that he should say. So what I've done is that I found myself going to Newsmax and listening to Greta Van Susteren, who isn't necessarily a Trump fan, but she has a legal background and she's able to interpret the news. As it happens, whereas Brett, it seems, I don't, and I don't know if it's because he's on Fox and they told him this is the line and you got to stick with it. And that's, mm-hmm. to me, I find this to be really re- uh, troublesome. And I can mm-hmm. only imagine what Trump is thinking. Now, I know Trump feels that Fox should be in his court and whatnot. No, they should just report the news. That's it. You should not take sides. And while we see Fox as being a right-wing news outlet, still, you can report the facts as a reporter, as a journalist, and then allow the commentators on the show, the talk show hosts like, uh, what's his name, Sean Hannity, 
and Greg Gutfeld and Jesse Waters to do their personal commentary. What are your thoughts, Heather? Yeah, I mean, I think more uh, really rigorous uh, analysis on the part of lawyers and legal experts is interesting. I mean, I just can't get over more attorneys aren't freaked out by this. I mean, it's I guess because the trial lawyers tend to be liberal, you know, and everything. This this Trump hate seems to to no pun intended Trump everything. I mean. I, you know, I honestly think even if I felt differently about Trump as a journalist, I'd be concerned. And I, you know, I was very concerned about the whole trying to con- prosecute him for incitement. I mean, anyone who's taken journalism 101 could have pretty much concluded that nothing Trump said there rises to the level of incitement. Okay. I mean, you have to directly incite violence uh you know for speech you can't criminalize uh figurative language anybody who's taken a journalism course knows this saying fight for justice and then somebody goes out and kills somebody you can't criminalize someone who said oh i think we should fight for justice i mean it's 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 idiotic honestly that it got to the level it got and the only reason it did is because you know, people were very upset, and I do get that January 6th, the violence was terrible, it was upsetting, but, um, you know, similarly, though, I mean, I don't see how lawyers cannot be objecting to all of this in terms of the attack on attorney-client privilege. I mean, it seems to me that a part of this uh, prosecution is resting on Trump having consulted with his attorneys, and as you said the other night, Rob, you know, all kinds of things are said, um, you know, privately to one's attorney, and that's a very sacred principle. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, some of that is going to be dredged up. And part of what he's being criminally accused of is essentially filing lawsuits and talking to his lawyers and you know that's that's getting into territory that's a uh, very creepy uh, for for the government to be trying to mount a prosecution based on that. So you know I'm just surprised not to hear more lawyers. Maybe you know I haven't been watching that much TV. Maybe they have expressed concern about this. They haven't. I, I'm glad you said that. As I mentioned, that's the reason why I like listen to Greta Van Susteren because she is an attorney by trade. And she was one of the few attorneys who covered the O.J. Simpson trial, and she was giving us context as to what was happening, breaking down the legalese. And I'm also shocked that more attorneys aren't out there saying, you can't – what we're doing right now is that we're treading in bad territory by going after attorneys for advising their client or even having counsel with them. And for people just to sit back, our, our our law system to sit back and say nothing, to me, is dangerous. So yeah. it begs a question during tonight's debate, will they even bring that up? Because to me, that's important. Well, what, what's important is the economy and how these candidates are going to what they what they propose how they're going to uh help the economy but also what their views are on our legal system and the justice system being weaponized against another candidate and that's what's happening and when i don't see journalists talking about that more and saying 
do you realize that they're weaponizing our Department of Justice? And this isn't about Trump as it is setting precedent, because if they're able to do this against him, they will come after you. And I always say, and I've said this on many shows, black people as a whole should be looking at this because we always get the bad part of the stick when something like this happens. But people are quiet. They're not saying anything because they feel that it's about Trump. So I hope tonight that question is presented to all the candidates as opposed to we know they're going to say they'll probably open up with, well, let's just look at the big elephant in the room. Donald Trump isn't on the stage, not that he's an elephant. Okay, we know he's not there. Move on beyond it. And if they start going into that, well, why don't you think he should be here? And why is this and why is that? Then we know it's just a fix. The fix is in. Because the question should be, in my opinion, what are your thoughts on the Department of Justice being weaponized against American citizens? What are your thoughts and what would you do about it? What do you say, Heather? Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I I just think in the macro, this whole thing is so creepy. I mean, what did Trump do? What is the crime? I mean, questioning this the the validity, the the questioning the accuracy of the count. None of that is anything that hasn't been done many times by many other leaders. We've, you know, seen Al Gore and Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams and and it's American. It's an American value to call for well, look at Hillary. Hillary questioned the election. Stacey Abrams questioned the election. Every year, Democrats question the election, but when they do it, nothing happens. So I, right. I'm, I and of course, you know, the, the, what the Democrats will say is that oh, the January sixth insurrection is the worst threat to our democracy since the Civil War. And I noticed that this man whose piece you sent me, Rob, who's a Republican, describes it that way. And I mean. <sighs> I, I, it seems to me that there's a conflating of different things. There was a, a terrible riot, you know, mob scene that, that, that got that took a terrible turn on January 6th. But that's, you know, all the emotion about that doesn't prove that Trump orchestrated it or that Trump um, knew he lost and deliberately tied up the courts with lawsuits. You know, I mean, that's all, uh, these are big leaps of logic there. It's like people who I think should know better. Um, I, you know, I just don't think, I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, uh, I don't have an intimate knowledge of every legal argument they're going to make and everything they may have to present. But from where I sit, it seems extremely unlikely to me that they can prove that Trump knew with certainty he had lost and, you know, mounted this enormous legal effort anyway, just for giggles and amusement. I don't know why he would do that if he really believes he lost that he's just, such a, a complete nut job and, and egotist. I mean, that's how they see him, I guess. But for several reasons, that makes no sense to me, logically, including that he still believes he won, which is a point that Alan Dershowitz made the other day in an article uh, in the Daily Mail. Um, 
it reminds me a lot of, you know, a lot of their stuff is not logic based, you know, I mean, it's just in the big picture, it's like, there's all this emotion, there's all this hatred of Trump and understandable distress about January 6th and a desire to blame. And, you know, the one thing they'll never do, as I've said many times, is look inward at all, even a little bit and say, well, part because people had been locked down for six months for, oh, excuse me, for two years and, you know, watched riots take place for six months while they themselves were told you can't go to school, work, to your grandmother's funeral. If you're more than 15 people, you can't go to sporting events, no church, you know, no normalcy. And, you know, I mean, we know that the causes of uh, what happened there, of course, the people who were God violent are the ones who were ultimately responsible for what they did that was wrong. You know, we're not going to be like the left and, you know, pretend that people who co who conduct political violence aren't to be held accountable. I mean, okay, they were wrong, but, you know, there's no willingness to look at the overall landscape and how, how, uneven justice is being applied and policies are being applied. And, and so now we have this emotion-based prosecution of the very leader whose, whose vilification, I think, you know, is part of what has created so much of this, this resentment and this anger. And um, yeah, I mean, I just think in terms of the legal case, I think they're going to have a very hard time. And I mean, unless our justice system is totally corrupt at this point, how are they going to prove, you know, something that's that really defies logic? I mean, defies the sort of Occam's razor. I mean, you look at this, the simplest explanation, simpler explanation is usually the correct one. And I think in this case, Trump believed he won. Um, and he tried to pursue, you know, that through every legal means he has and you know i mean I, I i think that's what happened and i don't think that's a crime right so, well but, we're up yeah. against a commercial break and we're going to pick this up on the other side of the break and we're going to propose to you or present to you questions that we think the moderator should ask each of the contenders tonight you're listening to after dark with robin andrew and the america outlaw platform come back after commercial break thank you This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? 
Kofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Kofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. And we're back with After Dark with Robin Andrew. And when we went to break, I was mentioning to you that we're going to discuss some top or a topic or questions that we feel, and I saw this in a news uh, magazine, that the candidates should be able to answer. And last night, Andrew and I had discussed the same thing. And one of the things we said that they should be able, all the candidates should be able to answer in Pivot Farm is that question that we know that they're going to ask, Trump isn't here. Why do you think he's not here? Do you think he should be here? And I think that all the candidates should be prepared to say, right, he's not here, but this isn't about him. This is about us. This is about me and what I plan to do as the president. Now, any candidate that gets stuck in the weeds, Heather, it starts going off with, well, Trump, he should step aside because he's on all the indictments and Trump isn't good for the country and Trump is not going to win a general. That person we know without a doubt should not get our vote, should not. We should not support that person because this is their time to shine on stage. And as I've always said, I, I don't like these types of debates because they're more geared toward, OK, you're stepping into the arena. Now you've got to fight each other to the death. No. Because once this is over, you've got to say, no, I throw my support behind that candidate. Now, how can you say that if you attack the person and say that the person is no good and they have rotten policies? Did you have an epiphany all at once and say, now it's time to support them? See, I don't like debates like that. I think the debate should be on what are you going to do? What are your, your What is your platform? And how do you plan to help America as opposed to tear down your candidate? Now, I was reading an article on The Hill, and they also had questions that they felt that the candidate should be able to answer. One of them is, will you accept the results of the election even if you don't win? Now, <laughs> that's a fair question. And my response would be, absolutely. Why wouldn't I? Now, then I would turn it around and say, now we should ask the Democrats, are they going to accept the results of the election? Because we happen to know that every election year or election cycle and they don't win, they attack it. Look at Bush versus Gore. They're always attacking the election, even within their own primaries, Hillary and Bernie Sanders. They're constantly fighting. So that question should be put to the larger group, mainly the Democrats, because we know they will not accept the winner of 
any race unless it's them. The next one, will you promote a peaceful transfer of power? <laughs> They're trying to say this and take stabs at Trump. Okay, but look at what happened with Trump when Trump was elected. They immediately started the whole Russia collusion. And we know this because John Durham's report that came out that was met rather typically, and the mainstream media refused to cover it because they got everything wrong, all the stories that they wrote and got Pulitzer Prizes for, it was all garbage. It was disinformation. Why haven't they returned the awards? Why haven't they returned the prizes? Because we now know from his report that there was never, ever any Russia collusion. But we also know that John Brennan went into the Biden, the Obama-Biden White House when Obama was still the president and told him, this is what Hillary Clinton is planning on doing. And this is how she's going to do it. They were never going to accept the election. And for four years, up until today, making it six, they are yet to accept the election. They're yet to accept a peaceful transfer. Look at Stacey Abrams. Abrams. She still thinks she's the governor of Florida, despite the fact that she's lost twice. Remember when she came out and said, if it wasn't for voter suppression, I would be the governor. Or we won. We won this. I don't care what they say. We won. Hillary Clinton coming out saying, you can run the best campaign, but you can still have the election stolen from you. So let's ask the Democrats, and that's what the Republicans on the stage should say. Okay, you're asking us this, but what about the Democrats? Right. What are they going to do? Are they going to accept the election, and are they okay with a promote, to promote a peaceful transfer of power? The next one, should those involved in Jan 6 be held accountable? Okay, that's a perfectly good question. Are we going to hold Christopher Ray? accountable. He's yet to tell us what happened with Ray Epps. He's yet to inform us as to whether or not the FBI had private agents within that group to rile up the folks. He's yet to release it. He's yet to say anything about it. They're yet to say why Nancy Pelosi did not have Capitol Hill police officers when Trump said, we need them there. Where was Muriel Browser? They're yet to find out from her why she didn't have police there. See, these are the questions that they need to ask, and these candidates need to be smart enough to pivot and say, yes, I support this. However, let's look at this. Let's look at Jan 6, the same way we could look at what happened during the summer of 2020 when we had all the, the rioting and the violence. Who's going to accept that? Do we not think that we should be investigating that? Similarly, our FBI, what did our FBI have to do with Jan 6? You see how I pivoted? So I'm giving them their talking points, although we're on at the same time. But I hope that Martha McCallum and Brett Baer would have the foresight to ask these questions as opposed to, let's see if these candidates will beat up on Trump. Let's see if Chris Christie will beat up on Ron DeSantis. Let's see if they're going to beat up on Biden because Biden is rising in the polls. These are the questions that should be put out there. And they should be prepared to answer those questions as opposed to having talking points as to how they're going to attack and destroy Trump. Again, any of those candidates that come out attacking Trump, we should not vote for them at all. You know why? Because they have fallen for the narrative of the left. They're doing their dirty work. And that's what the Democrats want. They want them to go on stage and attack Trump and to wound him more, not that they're not already doing it. So if the Democrats are doing it, why can't you guys pivot and talk about what you're going to do for the country? So, Heather, I want to give your crack at that, at the questions that I just presented. How do you think that they should respond? The first one being, will you accept the results of the election even if you don't win? Well, I think that the short answer should be yes. 
Um, I think that if you if 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 honesty is in order, which we know how much the world loves honesty, <laughs> a lot of people think they do, but they don't. Um, they'd say yes if I have confidence in the system and if my information suggests that the the election was fair. Of course, I'll accept it. I mean, here's what I really think, Rob. I think that we've had many contested elections in this enormous country. And it, the further you get from the local level, you know, we're an enormous country. What are we? Over 350 million people now. Um, this is massive. And it's very, very rife with opportunities for all kinds of impropriety and fraud. And I think We've had, whether we're talking about the, the 2000 Bush, Bush Gore, excuse me, whether we're talking about um, even going way back to 1960, I believe. You know, I was doing some reading. A lot of people believe that Nixon might have won that election. Um, but depending on who you ask, um, many people believe that Nixon believed he won, but that he conceded. And he decided to run again four years later, but that he felt that to contest it would be so traumatic and, in, uh, you know, destabilizing for the country. And that Nixon was actually in some ways kind of a selfless man. I know that's hard to believe given um, what happened later and the um, interpretation we we're taught of what happened later. But he was... Uh, he, you know, he, it was all, there were many, many very close elections. We, we know that. And I think that maybe Trump is just not the type of person to go gentle into that, you know, dark night. He is just not one to accept anything he doesn't believe. And I think that quality is one of the things people who like him like about him, love about him. It's so rare. And I, I think that he also maybe, you know, he's a, he's a different personality. He's not a acquiescent or, you know, a self-sacrificing personality, maybe. And maybe Nixon had more of that in him, and maybe Gore did too, you know. And it's it's I think that there's been a lot of um, precedent for the person who loses in an ambiguous situation to just concede and, um, you know, for the sake of unity, move forward. Now, I don't personally think that I don't I don't fault Trump for not doing that. But I, I do think that maybe it would have been better if he had. I think that um, one thing that gives me a little comfort about the whole thing is that, you know, for all the unprecedented, disturbing, chilling things we've witnessed, I don't think that, that elections that are too close to call is unprecedented. I think it's happened before. Um, you know, it's all so vast and complicated. And I, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I don't really think that uh, I would fault a candidate for either saying yes or for saying yes, but I would insist upon you know, uh, every legal recourse to examine the accuracy of the election. It's just, elections are important, you know, Rob? And I guess I just, it's one of those rare things where I don't think it's a clear cut right and wrong. I know people want it to be. They want to see Trump as the villain. 
for refusing to go gentle, you know, and put the unity of the country first. I do think there's an argument to be made that he should have, but he didn't believe he lost. And I'll tell you what, I don't know who I, I, from the start, I remember I told you in terms of what I really believe, if you held a gun to my head right now, if I had to say, and if I get it wrong, I'm dead. I'd say, I honestly, I think Biden probably won. But am I sure? Nope. I think there was so much chaos. There was so much um, upheaval with COVID. And I think the Democratic establishment would stop at almost anything, as we've seen. Short of assassination, they would stop at anything to prevent him from being back in that Oval Office. So I don't have a hard time believing, you know, that there might have been massive fraud but i don't know and i don't think right. anybody really knows at this point and it's it's too late to know and i think we do need to move forward and so i guess my bottom line is i think a candidate you know if it's an old school democrat or republican type who's an establishment person the ant the correct answer is yes i accept the results of the election but with everything that's happened and all the distrust of big government we've seen, I think a candidate would be justified in saying, yes, but if I think there is evidence of massive fraud, I would pursue it legally and I wouldn't back down until all avenues had been exhausted, which is what Trump did, which is not a crime. That's what and I think. What, and then what about the peaceful transfer? What do you, how do you think they should respond to that? Well, that's a pretty hard one to say no to. I mean, I think that that once it's you've done everything you can, yes, I think they should say yes. I, w I would accept a peaceful transfer of power, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, to me, again, these questions that they're putting out there, they're they're saying, they're pretty basic. But I think that these candidates, because everyone is focusing in on Trump, that they could very easily get caught up in it as well. And not answer the question the way it should be, thus causing more or giving more fuel to the fire that, oh, they don't trust Trump and they don't like Trump and it's not going to be a unified party. And I think that this is what a lot of people are hoping. Definitely the Democrats will come out of this debate. But if they're able to pivot and say, well, of course we want a peaceful transfer, and we would think that the Democrats would want the same thing, but we know that they have not wanted that because Hillary Clinton – as opposed to accepting the fact that she lost to Trump, she came out saying that she was cheated, that it was stolen from her. And she got everyone else thinking the same thing with this entire Russia collusion. And we know, again, that it was a complete lie. The next question that I want you to get, to get your thoughts on, should those involved in Gen 6 be held accountable? We've already answered that. We said yes. Okay, but let's go back to those individuals that were involved with the destruction and the riots of 2020. How are they going to respond to that? What do you think they should say? Well, Rob, we know there will be no revisiting that. That is something that I think very few people have the stomach to touch. And it's the only thing I can say that would in any way be to bend over backwards to be, you know, you know how appalled I was about that, particularly because I think it set the stage for these um, soft on crime policies that the victims have been disproportionately minority children. I think that what's ha what happened in 2020 
was really and it continues to be an ongoing case of multiple wrongs supposed to make a right. I think it's terrible. I think it's resulted in the deaths and injury of more innocent people. And that is why I, I didn't support it. And I don't. I felt terrible about the death of George Floyd. I, I, you know, I did understand there was a lot of anger justified. But it, to me, it was as simple as, you know, you don't punish, you don't do things that are going to create a climate where more innocent people die and get, get hurt people who had nothing to do with the death of George Floyd and call that justice. I, I, you know, I, I, but I think that we won't see any real um, revisiting of that because it was, it was uh, a set of um, really abuses that were spun by the leftists, the radical leftists and the picked up by the media and spun as somehow justice. And we were all, in Orwellian fashion, supposed to sit there and observe it and not oppose it. Um, Kamala Harris said it should continue, right? It was uh, a nightmare, you know, and I'm not saying there weren't some good people and some peaceful people out there trying, to, you know, but I think in the end, they wound up just providing cover for these corrupt organizations and for more violence, which poor Martin Luther King would be turning in his grave to see and, um, you know, I just think that we won't see, I mean, part of the whole uh, fear of confronting that is the fear of being called a racist, which is going to prevent any revisiting of that. What do you think? I agree. If anyone speaks out against it, of course, they're going to try to turn it around. And that is a reason why I think that Republicans must be prepared to answer that question and be able to pivot and then toss it back to the Democrats, which is something that we have not been good at. We get lost. We become gun shy. We become like afraid. Oh, what, what am I supposed to say? What is the best thing to say? If I don't say the right thing, they're going to come after me. We got to stop being afraid. And we've just got to start speaking up and say, this is what I think. Yes, those individuals that anyone who did something wrong, they should be punished. But a lot of them that are in jail, they've just been there wasting away because our justice system has been weaponized against them and that we're not for everyone is entitled to a fair and speedy trial look at what they're trying to do to trump they're trying to rush his thing to trial immediately before his attorneys can even look at the case because they're hoping well we'll catch him off guard and we'll just force them a speedy trial is not for the prosecutor, but for the defendant. Now, we're up against another commercial break. We're going to come back. And there's a question that I want you, not a question, but there's an article that just came out about Vivek and his position on giving money to Israel that I want to get your thoughts on, Heather. So we'll be back after this commercial break. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. 
Well, Heather, what can I say? We're in the last half of the show. When we went to break, I was teasing everyone or mentioning an article that just came out recently that we saw about Mike Beck giving his thoughts on aid to Israel. We know his position on Ukraine, and he feels that the money should be kept here in America. And I agree with him because a lot of that money, we're sending them like billions of dollars. And look at how much we're sending to Hawaii after that disaster. Look at how much the Biden administration sent to East Palestine after that disaster with the train wreck. And no one has said anything about it. It's as if though we've forgotten all about the citizens of Palestine. Why is that? Biden is yet to visit. Why hasn't he gone to Ohio? Well, is it because they voted for Trump? Well, look at Hawaii. I don't think they voted for Trump. So why hasn't he sent more money? I think he said they're going to give them like $700 a piece. What is $700 going to do for them when we're spending like billions on illegal aliens that are coming here? It makes you want to scratch your head. It's like, what is this administration doing? What are they thinking? But people, come election time, people will go and vote for them again and then complain. But hey, what can I say? But I want to go back to what I was saying. I want to get your thoughts on this latest buyback's position on Israel, where he's saying that we need to cut back. What are your thoughts on that, Heather? Well, I my initial reaction is I'm a little distressed to hear it, Rob. I like Vivek. And of course, you know, I'm a very strong uh, you know, American Zionists, I believe in the relationship between Israel and America being rock solid. And um, however, I read a little further down in the article that you sent me. And, you know, I, I, I think there's a little more nuance to his position than maybe people might realize at first blush. One thing he says is it's something about how when I'm trying to find it, he says something like, not that he wants to cut off all aid to Israel, but that he thinks as Israel's relationship with its Arab, that he would continue doing more as far as the Abraham Accords, expand the Abraham Accords, the normalization deals between Israel and Arab countries after Israel is more integrated. Um, I'm sorry, I'm losing the paragraph. Basically, he's saying that when you know, the hope is that things will get better for Israel, as far as relations with its neighbors, um, you know, normalization deals, Israel is more integrated with its neighboring countries. Israel should be able to, quote, stand on its two feet financially. Come 2028, that additional aid won't be necessary in order to still have the kind of stability that we'd actually have in the Middle East by having Israel more integrated in with its partners. So he's not saying cut off all aid to Israel. He's saying Maybe if, if we continue the Abraham Accords, presumably Israel would have more, you know, financial deals and, you know, healthy relations with its Arab neighbors, and that Israel maybe won't need so much money. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, the tone of it doesn't seem to be anti-Israel in the way that you hear in the past some of, you know, I remember... Uh, Ron Paul kind of, you know, felt it felt a little antagonistic toward Israel. It felt kind of like isolationist. This seems a little more nuanced to me. And, you know, I mean, if I'm really going to keep an open mind, I mean, you know, I care deeply about Israel. But if things are going better for Israel and Israel has, you know, more money, maybe it doesn't need as much aid. You know, I mean, that's kind of consistent with the whole conservative mindset of, we want to, you know, we want to encourage independence, whether we're talking about people in America, you know, whether we're talking about other countries, 
um, there's nothing wrong with helping if you're helping people to help themselves and to in Israel has a great tradition of, of enterprise. It's a huge high tech center. It's a great leader in terms of healthcare and science. I'm very proud to say, um, you know, Israel has grown a lot um, economically. It's, you know, under Bibi's leadership become something of a little powerhouse in the Middle East. So, you know, Israel doesn't, you know, maybe Israel, you know, won't need quite as much aid. So I don't know that I um, have a problem with it. You know, I mean, especially if it's couched in terms of more support for some of the, 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 the you know, look, Trump presided over the rare diplomatic initiative that actually seems to have achieved something. I mean, so much diplomacy to me, you know, I've been very critical of what U.S. diplomats have done in many areas, including this, you know, push from the NATO and all this. I think I just think it's dumb. I think we've helped to pave the way for a real quagmire in Eastern Europe. I, I mean, I think that what Trump did worked pretty well, right? I mean, he, he helped Israel normalize relations with, I think, five Arab countries, not the immediate neighbors, but uh, Morocco, Sudan, I believe Yemen, and uh, what was the other? The Saudis, I think. So, you know, it was a big deal. And I don't know all the financial side, but I guess it's benefiting both Israel and those countries. So that sounds good to me, you know, if, if, if that kind of peacekeeping, that kind of um, mutual win-win kind of deal-making could reduce the need for U.S. tax money to go to Israel, that'd be okay. I mean, I also, I mean, it's not, it's not like we're saying, yeah, you know, even if things get worse to Israel, we're not giving them a dime and da-da-da-da. I mean, that's not the tone of it. It's, it's let's help Israel to continue its diplomatic progress with the neighbors and make more deals with them and be more stable so that we don't have to, you know, increase the tax money. That, that said, it should be said that uh, most of the money that Israel gets from America gets spent right here because it's, it's mostly um, Israel does, gets all its weapons from America. They're all manufactured here and, you know, mostly in New Jersey, I think. It's a lot of jobs, you know, and a lot of money that just comes right back here. So it isn't the kind of foreign aid that's just not doing anything for America either. Um, but, yeah, that's my take. Do you think that Vivek has a chance at winning the nomination I know that they're saying that he's picking up steam. Mm-hmm. He might be tied with Ron DeSantis. Yeah. But overall, I mean, because anyone can pick up steam, and we've seen that to happen before. Yeah. But do you see him, honestly, as a viable candidate, or is he someone who's there that makes people feel good? But when I'm looking at the electorate, I don't necessarily think that they're ready for a Vivek. And as I mentioned to Andrew on last night, I personally think that we need someone who's more seasoned than these candidates that are still in their 30s, their early 40s. And I don't want to sound like an ageist, but we do need someone who is seasoned. And I know a lot of people will look at Trump and they'll say, oh, well, he's old and he's just like Biden. And I'm like, we got to break the two. We can't confuse the two. Biden is an old, old, and he's cognitively challenged. Biden is the same age or as Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is not cognitively challenged the last time I looked. 
There's a big difference there. Biden is the same age as Mick Jagger, and Mick Jagger is still on concerts. There's a big difference. But I'm really concerned about having candidates that are young and they don't have necessarily the experience that they need to run a country of this size. It's one thing to say, oh, well, I did it in my own company. Okay, that's the company. We're not talking about meeting with world leaders and doing so much more. And by Beck, albeit he's articulate, he's a smart man, but I don't think he's seasoned enough. What do you say, Heather? That may be true, Rob. And I think he's a a long shot, a real long shot. I like him. And I know a couple intelligent, very young people who like him, who are more registered independents, I think, which is interesting because to me, Vivek is staking out the very much the Trump vote. Um, he's going very hardcore populist. And um, I, I, what I've heard about him is positive, just as far as his bio. A friend of mine went to law school with him, um, says he's a really nice guy. They went to Yale Law School. He's obviously a tremendous achiever. He's a, he's a billionaire, I believe, at 36, self-made. I think he, he did things in finance. He produced pharmaceuticals. I don't know exactly what all, but he's one of those lawyers who's not just a lawyer, who's also a, a you know, big businessman, an entrepreneur. Um, so he has that entrepreneurial drive and spirit like Trump. So I really, as you know, I'm a big fan of people who have made it in another field than going into politics. I much prefer that um, to somebody who's been a career politician, especially when it comes to leading the whole country as a president. I think it's important. The more and more I, you know, I see, I think that it's ideal for somebody to bring skills uh, that aren't just strictly the skill of getting elected and legislating, but are managerial, you know, and um, I think that's very important. And I think that getting, you know, a president from the business world who's made it would be great, you know, um, but I agree. I mean, he's very young and I guess I just need to read more and hear it more to have a real firm opinion. I mean, I've read and I followed him and he's a big supporter of Trump. He has not gone out and attract Trump like so many other other candidates have. Yeah. But I still think that he's not he's not seasoned enough. And I think that's where a lot of times we mess up. And some people will refer back to JFK. They'll say, well, he was young and Bill Clinton was young. Mm-hmm. I get it. They were. Okay. And I even questioned Bill Clinton at the time. He got yeah. the job done despite him and his little, you know, sex capades and even with JFK. But mm-hmm. I really think that we need someone who's seasoned. Well, We've got to he- stop tossing off our seasoned individuals. It's just like even on jobs, you'll yeah. look at people, you'll say, we want someone who's just someone who sees it and look with parents you you can t- you'll take advice from someone who's been through it who's done it would you go to a, a marriage counselor who hasn't been married who hasn't experienced it well some people do which is i find you know i question that the same thing with life coaches i'm 25 years old and i'm a life coach okay what life have you lived so it just mm-hmm. takes me back to a lot of the candidates that are there yeah they're, they're good but what experience are they going to bring to the table that's going to be beneficial and helpful for us? And I do think that we need someone who is seasoned and who understands the complexities of the problems that we're in on a global stage. Well, also, do you think that Vivek could be hoping to be asked to be Trump's vice? I mean, that's what it seems like to me, maybe. 
you know, which is okay that he might be, you know, angling in hopes that Trump would ask him to run as his vice president. Well, they've mentioned that. And they and he has said that he does not want the vice. And they always say that I'm not running for this. I'm running for to be the president. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I don't even see him as being the vice. I don't mm-hmm. see what votes he would bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And while the media, again, would build him up as being this person who would be able to bring the votes to the table, they're looking at he will be able to bring the Asian votes, the Indian American votes. It's only a small segment. We're looking at the entire electorate. And I don't see him being able to bring them over. Yes, there are some that will look at him and say, oh, wow, he's great and we should get him. But it's not enough. It has to be a substantial amount. I mean, that's the same thing with Ron DeSantis. He was told that he'll be able to get all of Trump votes and that he's peeling up the votes. And look at all the missteps that he's had. Look Mm -hmm. at Tim Scott. Look at Nikki Haley. I mean, she thought that she would be able to bring the women vote and it just hasn't materialized. I don't know why Mike Pence is in it, other than the fact that he wants to be a disruptor, he and Chris Christie. Now, I hear some saying, we should keep an eye on Chris Christie. I would not vote for Chris Christie. Now, if he wins a nomination, of course, I will bite my tongue because I think he would be better than Democrat. But I don't think he has what it takes to be the president. I think he's completely unprincipled. I think I know that that everybody thinks that about this one and that one, but I just think Christie's really a low life. I gotta say. <laughs> Maybe have some skills and all that, but I just think, I mean, some of the things he's done and the way he turns on people, he just seems without any scruples. I really uh, want him to be personally offensive. Right. Well, we're almost out of time. And I want you to share with our listeners some of the things that some of the articles that you're working on, but definitely talk to us about this past weekend. You attended a pageant in Pennsylvania, the Miss, I think it Miss Italy or Miss Italian. You want to tell our listeners yeah. about that? We have like three minutes left. It was really, really inspiring, Rob. I was at something called the Little Miss Italy Pittsburgh pageant, which I stumbled upon in Bloomfield. Uh, neighborhood of Pittsburgh, which is our Italian neighborhood. I guess the closest thing Pittsburgh has to Little Italy. Um, and it was a lot of uh, beautifully dressed up little girls, different age categories, you know, five to seven, seven to 10, 10 to 12, whatever, all the way up through teenage. Um, and they, it was a beauty pageant. And I thought it was such a slice of small town USA life to see that this is still going on. I mean, darling little girls. And um, I had, you know, mostly very positive feelings about it. I mean, it did seem to me that it's kind of like with all the upheavals that have happened, the starting with the, the 60s feminism and radical feminism. And now what we have today with, you know, the explosion of concern and fascination with transgenderism and all kinds of variations on the theme of being gay, which of course there have always been people who are gay. I don't think there's anything unnatural about that, but you know, we've seen the culture just take on such a fascination with all of it. And the left has seized on it as we know to politicize what it means to be a woman, to be a girl but what, you know, what's in a, a guy, you know, but what struck me is that these little girls and teenage girls, there they were. And listen, I'm not going to uh, 
spin it, it was a beauty contest. It was supposed to be about, you know, who's the prettiest, who looks the pretty, who's the most poised. So I had a little bit of, um, I must say, whatever part of me has a little sympathy for the feminist movement, there was a little discomfort in seeing that. But, you know, I saw the girls were all dressed up so beautifully and they seemed happy. And they got up and talked about what it meant to be Italian-American and their families. And then the judges picked winners. And um, I and even, the you know, there were plenty of girls who didn't win. And uh, personally, I was pulling for this one little girl who was a comedian. She did a comedy act that was very funny. She wrote some of her own jokes. And I think I would have picked her. But, but she didn't win. But the thing was, they all seemed to be in good spirits afterward. I talked with a couple of them. And, um, you know, I thought to myself, this is a, a relic maybe, but it, it's like the, all the political correctness and the, um, you know, confusing ideas can't change certain elemental, um, uh, drives, you know, in human nature, you know, girls still want to look pretty. They still want to dress up and be feminine and be girls and they are and here they were and there was nobody to scold them and scold everybody that there was something wrong with it so it was it was sweet and it was fun it was a nice day right so it brought it brought it brought us back to those or brought you back to those times when we weren't in such a upheaval with everyone fighting and bickering we were able just to sit back and relax well folks we're out of time I want to thank heather robinson for joining us tonight Stay tuned for tomorrow night where we will bring you another episode of After Dark with Robin Andrew on the America Out Loud platform. And as my friend Andrew would always say, stand for something or fall for nothing. Be blessed and good night. <laughs>